Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Diane Gomez-Thinez is a worldwide president at Mentor, one of the world's biggest makers of breast implants for aesthetic and post-surgical breast reconstruction. Diane has been with the Johnson & Johnson Company since 2016 and held the title of Vice President for U.S. Marketing and Global Strategic Marketing before ascending to the role of President in 2019. Before Mentor, Diane was a marketing executive for medical device makers Ethicon and Cordis. She began her career as an engineer in the oil business and has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Princeton as well as an MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. In this conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Diane gets into everything from COVID-era communications to mentorship and the importance of championing women in the communications industry. Please enjoy this conversation with mentor president Diane Gomez-Thinnis. Hello and welcome back. This is Paul Dyer, CEO at Lippy Taylor Group. I am joined here today by Diane Gomez-Thinnis, who is president at Mentor, one of the world's largest medical aesthetics companies and the largest maker of breast implants for aesthetic and post-surgical breast reconstruction. Uh, In addition to her role, um, her leadership role over Mentor today, Diane's career um, followed the path of becoming the vice president for U.S. marketing and global strategic marketing before ascending to the top job. So um, first of all, Diane, thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course. Happy to be here, Paul. So, Diane, I, I wanted to start with something that's maybe um, it's, it's maybe a little bit personal, near and dear to your heart. Um, your upbringing um, you know, gave you, you've said, a real appreciation for mentorship, um, a different kind of mentor here, a mentorship. Um, so can you talk about your personal experience and what mentorship means to you today? Yeah, thanks, Paul, for the question. It, it is something I'm passionate about, and, and it is a little bit of my personal story, and maybe I can characterize it as I think about mentorship as advancement and service. And my parents are both immigrants from Mexico and from Ecuador. Um, and, you know, early on, they really valued education. And so I really think about my story is how many immigrants think about um coming to this country, leaving everything that they know and raising their family for better opportunities. And so I'm a bit of a product of of a lot of what I would say, uh, nonprofit organizations focused on on education, particularly for disadvantaged youth or those who were not brought up with any privilege. Uh, I am the product of um, coaches in the sports community. My parents kept me really busy. It was really important in the environment I grew up to keep us, us busy and off the streets. Community service was really important. And I would say church um, in particular as well. And that's probably where I saw my parents as leaders in the community. And they modeled what it was to be mentors to other families and to to other uh, immigrants just like themselves. And so for me, this is a lot about humility and relationship building. And I say advancement because mentorship has helped me through my life. But at the same time, there's um, I now feel um, and have for a long time always the obligation to give back. And that's not something that I've done just now as a leader. I remember when um, I started early in my career just as a professional, just having graduated from college, I served as a mentor to college students. 
when I advanced my career a little bit further than it was for young professionals. And so it's always been a part of my life. Um, just yesterday, I had someone who I connected with within the company who asked me if I could be a mentor for hers. And I've never said no. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, folks come around and and they take it seriously and, and others, you know, may come in once in a while, pop in, you know, one moment, one year and let a couple years go. And that's fine as well. If I can be of help to folks, I will do that. You know, I do want to just take this one quick moment to recognize one of my great mentors in life, uh, Colonel Ray Garcia. He was actually a uh, pilot in World War II. And, you know, he and, and his wife are are still thriving. And the um, reason why it meant a lot to me early in my career, um, because I was a very shy individual, didn't have a lot of mentors in life, uh, he really pushed me to get uncomfortable. And that's something that has stuck with me throughout my life. Um, and uh, he had the opportunity to become a fighter pilot when they dropped the requirement um, for college education in World War II because of the war. And so that gave him a lot of opportunity and he's since on to, to model uh, a lot of the mentorship behaviors that I uh, you know, hope to continue to do for those that I mentor as well. That's really an incredible story. And obviously one of the things that I think holds back a lot of young people from finding their mentor is, as you mentioned, it's, it's sometimes it's intimidating to go up to somebody much more senior than you and you don't even know what to ask, you know? And so it's great that you've been so open in, in making yourself accessible to people. One of the other words that you just mentioned that I, before we move on, I want to, I want to bring it back up because I don't hear many um, business leaders or marketers use the word service. Um, and it was something here on this, this podcast um, a couple episodes ago, um, Raja Rajamanar, who's the CMO at MasterCard, said there's a time to sell and a time to serve. Um, and it's the only other time I've heard it really used in this context is, is from the two of you. So I was wondering if you could maybe, you know, just say a little more about your thoughts um, when it comes to service in the context of, you know, what we do every day. Uh, I, I think it's it's great. I have thought about my leadership style very much as one of service. And, you know, we can talk about this in a couple ways. But I think, one, I'll start with something that stuck with me from hearing uh, the founder of Kind, like the Kind Vars, uh, Daniel Lubetsky. He had uh, made a comment that at one point in our history, and we think about medieval times, the organizing institution was the church. Well, today, the organizing institution really is business, right? And so in that way, it is in our responsibility as business leaders, um, as part of this global connected uh, institution, if you will, that we are providing solutions beyond just selling products. It is about uh, addressing um, what society needs. And in this past year, boy, you know, have we talked a lot about that, whether it is around social injustice, whether it's, you know, the healthcare and the pandemic and disparities in healthcare. And so to me, I, I, I enjoyed hearing that because I think we have to reflect as business leaders that there is a bigger role for us to play because we do connect the world in business. The, the other way I think about it is I remember growing through my career and not 
necessarily always thinking about my style as being the style I saw maybe from the top. And maybe that brings us to a little bit on, on women's leadership, um, because it, it matters to me that women um, are have done an incredible job at this point and making inroads into more senior uh, leadership positions, but you know, also incredibly concerned with, I'm sure you've seen the report come out of McKinsey with the results of the pandemic that now one in four women are either exiting the work force or downshifting. So we're kind of going back to, to the 80s. But what I would also say is that the last year um, actually highlighted those women who have a support system like I do at home, that we can actually thrive in these environments. And it comes back to this point of, of service and how I think about um, my role as a leader, uh, as um, one of service leadership. And there's been a lot of research, whether it's authentic leadership or servant leadership or transformational leadership that really starts to speak to some uh, maybe newer characteristics of leaders for today's times that are quite distinct from the leaders that uh, we all saw growing up. And so, you know, what we know as an example is that EQ is the same for both men and women. We just lean on different competencies of EQ. And when it comes to women, those EQ competencies are actually ones um, that speak to social responsibility and empathy and inter interpersonal skills. And the competencies with men uh, from an EQ perspective and more associated with them are confidence, assertiveness, and stress tolerance. Both are great and they're all great. And each of us, you know, and it's not like women have uh, the monopoly on these competencies, but we, we all have to kind of stretch into each of these. And, and in some ways, I feel that um, that type of leadership uh, is, is how I've always thought about leadership and giving back to others and whether it's developing my team or how we address uh, our patients and consumers and, and so forth. So maybe I'll stop there, but I, I think about service in, in that way. That's, that's a great way to think about service. Um, it's funny you mentioned confidence as one of the, the sort of competencies of men when it comes to, you know, emotional intelligence. Um, there was an article that Maureen Lippi wrote on Provoke Media that was the most shared article of the year a couple of years ago. Okay. And she referenced the Dunning-Kruger effect in there, which is, of course, that when you have just a little bit of experience with something, you suddenly get tremendously confident about your ability in that. And then the more you learn about it, the more you realize, eh, I don't actually know what I'm doing here. Right. Um, and that how that's actually something that has served men at the expense of women in a lot of professional settings. Um, you know, so it's interesting to hear you say that confidence, you know, is, is specifically in the, you know, in the, the domain of men when it comes to emotional competency. When you think more broadly about championing women in communications and marketing, is something that is, it's near and dear to your heart. You know, you just, um, you just brought it up and we, we've known that about you for a while. Um, but you've also discussed the, the PIE concept in that, in regards to that perform, image, ex exposure, um, the, the pie concept. So can you break this down for us and explain the significance of it? Sure. Uh, I remember uh, starting out my career uh, in marketing and someone talked about pie. So I, you know, I didn't come up with that. I don't know exactly where it's sourced from, but I've heard it here and there over the years. 
And it made so much sense to me. And, and it's not to say there's only one way of thinking about career advancement and networking. And I think it worked for me, given my own personality. As I mentioned, I, I grew up pretty shy, not a lot of, of knowledge, right? Not a lot of mentors in, in the workplace. And you know, for me, I knew when I got to work, I had to perform. So performance for me was like results. And I was that kind of person, put your head down and deliver. And once you deliver, then your brand develops. And that's the whole uh, concept of image. An, an image comes about you, right? A lot of work being done on how to brand yourself and so forth. But for me, it was results then lead to what I'm known for as my personal brand. And it is when that brand is developed that others start to tap you on the shoulder. So for me, that exposure becomes advocacy. And so it worked for me. I remember early in my career seeing other uh, young professionals and they were, I was like, wow, they're great at networking. They're setting up lunches with senior executives. I would never have done that because I wasn't comfortable. And so for me, this, this was something that um, you know, worked a lot for me. And I, and I tell this to a lot of young professionals because oftentimes, yes, networking is great. And if they have the confidence and they have the ability and they have the know-how to do that, and it's great, but if you don't, or you're just trying to understand your performance is a place to start because that work is something you can talk about and, and stand behind. So, so that's why it worked for me. And I love to talk about, it and I love sharing that with some young professionals as well as first perform. <laughs> that's really important. It's an important reminder, you know, there's a quick Google search and you find lots of people telling you to build your social media brand and all these other things, but it doesn't really matter if you don't perform. So, right. <laughs> um, if we go back, I just want to go back a minute to um, your mentor, Ray Garcia. Right, he was an Air Force pilot, World War II, and it's interesting um, when you think about the number of military analogies and lexicon sort of you know adaptation we use in marketing, right? Targeting our customers and acquiring them and, you know, and um, putting boots on the ground with the tip of the spear, you know, like it really is, it's kind of, you could probably go all day just using those kinds of analogies. And yet when you've spoken about healthcare marketers, you've talked about how their role is actually to be the voice of the customer, right? To sort of put themselves in the customer's shoe and um, help through the process of developing innovation. Um, which is a different perspective than trying to target and acquire them. Um, so can you talk about this perception and, and how it manifests itself in your day-to-day -day operations? Yes, uh, I remember, by the way, I'm an engineer um, first in my career and I worked in the oil industry before I shifted to marketing. And I remember when I made that shift, everyone thought I was going to the dark side. And I'm like, oh, that's so old school thinking, right? I mean, the marketing where we're just thinking about the next widget we create and how do we tell a story to charge more money for it. And so I do subscribe to a more modern approach of marketing. And it is around thinking about, um, you know, impact either society or how we think about innovation for the betterment of, of patients or healthcare or society as, as a whole. And there is this aspect of voice of customer throughout the innovation roadmap. And I want to say voice, maybe with a little bit of quotation marks around it, because it's not necessarily that it's what customers tell you, because I think it's very limiting to think about it from a market research perspective alone. So it's non-traditional voice. There is this um, uh, expectation at this point um, for the real innovators to know that we are looking beyond 
the, the category we play in. We have to think about the work environment of our stakeholders. And this is customer, maybe healthcare professional who we sell to, but then also uh, the patient or the consumer. And so this is holistically looking, whether you call it the journey, the workflows uh, in both work and life that we're able to find some unique areas for innovation. And I think that's when you make a real impact and are able to articulate a different value proposition around what you have to offer. It's not about the thing, it's about the partnership. So I think a little bit more broadly when it comes to innovation. That's it's great. And it's interesting, you know, you brought up your, your different stakeholder groups there. So you've got your customer groups, the healthcare professionals, but also consumers who will exert influence over, the, you know, the choice when it comes to the product um, in your category. But um, this is something that's happening for, for all companies where at a corporate level, consumers were oftentimes... Um, you know, not a very important voice in the corporate in corporate boardrooms, um, and yet that's all been changing pretty pretty rapidly as new expectations of patients and consumers have been influencing companies when it comes to things in particular like um, social justice and um, sustainable and lasting diversity initiatives. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of how those new expectations of companies are actually translating, you know, into into corporate decision making. And then also, because we're on the outside as, a, as an agency, you know, the agencies all feel like we're supposed to play a role in this, right? We're supposed to be counseling and strategically advising on, on this topic. What is your position on, on sort of how agencies can best help somebody like you in that area of sustainability and, and diversity initiatives? Sure. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll break it down into a couple ways. So just in terms of how I've worked with agencies in the past, uh, and maybe before we jump into the diversity, I think that strategic counseling is earned. I will tell you that I personally, throughout my entire marketing career, have always first believed that I'm hiring marketers who are the strategists. And I, and I do that because I think that just take taking something to an outside agency right away um, doesn't allow us to do the work and be disciplined to do the work of, of strategy. So um, for me, that's always been very important. And so sometimes I start with small projects with agencies where I think it's a little bit more tactical. And I think that through that relationship building, through that engagement on the tactic, that's where teams come together on brainstorming and thinking things through together. Um, and then I think with that earned opportunity, then we can really have some real bigger strategic efforts and, and the agencies can play a role with that. So tying that to diversity, that's where it starts. So you may start on a project, but then you start to understand the culture, right, of an organization. And, you know, I think we're a little bit luckier in, in healthcare because I think that we've always um, had this higher purpose. Um, which is to save or enhance lives. And so I think because of that, we often put the patient or the consumer um, front and center, maybe not always when we think about how we approach, you know, healthcare professionals necessarily, we've thought about them separately. I think now we have to think about it together. But, um, but I think that because of that, we we're able to now talk about diversity together. So now, with regards to that, when I look at the agency, representation matters. You know, when I look at my own organization, um, 
I, I look at the need to uh, have a diverse workforce. And, and it's not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's necessary for, for business and the growth and for really driving some meaningful innovation for, for the future and some trust with, with our stakeholders, especially as demographics continue to change. So it's a business necessity. And so the right agency partner would also have to have that representation in the room. Look, we're, we're all competing for innovation at the end of the day. And if we, um, are, if we have that need for innovation, then we need a bunch of new ideas in the room, right? And, and this I heard from Carla Harris who speaks on this. And if you have uh, if you need a lot of ideas, then you need a lot of new perspectives. If you need a lot of new perspectives, then you need a lot of new experiences. And, and if you need a lot of new experiences, then you need a lot of different people in the room. So for me, that's the, the opportunity for agencies to build a relationship with, um, with their clients, the organizations, build that trust, and then really talk about you know, diversity initiatives around that innovation goal together. So you mentioned quite a few times there, the importance of being in the room. And this is something that, uh, you know, I'll give that same advice to, to young people when I'm either mentoring or interviewing them or, you know, whatever is, you know, find a job where you're going to be able to be in the room. Of course, here we are, it's been almost a year where nobody's been in the room together. Um, you know, it's been a very difficult time for everyone, including brands, agencies, business leaders like yourself. Um, so I'm curious, like, how has this, this um, inability to be in the room, you know, impacted your leadership ability? Um, and are there any major insights or lessons learned? Yes. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about when I was talking about transformational leadership and come back to that. Um, for those of us, especially women who've been fortunate, um, and, and quite honestly, everyone who's been fortunate enough to have a support structure at home, I think you can thrive in this environment because it goes back to being an empathetic leader and being um, you know, someone who can show that you don't have all the answers. You, you Everything is very uncertain. And sometimes that's what customers need to hear. Sometimes that's what your teams need to hear. Um, taking a break, having you know a child pop in, and that does happen. You know, often I have three young children, uh, and and it's okay. So I think to model that behavior, uh, I think really allows us as leaders uh, to get to know our teams better, get to know our customer base better. Um, it, it has been a challenge, um, I, I will say, because we I think we were chit chatting a little earlier. We have occupied every minute of our day because we are now in that uh, work life environment 24 seven. Um, but you know, when I look at this, even pre pandemic, the world in some ways was preparing us for, for this shift in leadership style. You know, first um, we're interconnected as a global right, uh, business community. Um, just as a, as people, we're more globally and interconnected. Um, we are directly talking to our customers all the time. You know, we talked about social media and digital. We're talking to them directly. Uh, there's new technology available, and this creates all kinds of webs of relationships. And we have this 24/7 intensity, and we had it before the pandemic. And you know what? 
what does that result in? We have to build and manage relationships differently. That's part of transformational leadership. Um, we have to lead from the center, not from the top, not in the hierarchical way that we used to uh, think about leadership or run our organizations. We have to have comfort with and not just tolerance of, of diversity. And um, we have to have this work-life integration. And we've been practicing that for a long time. So in some ways, you know, we we're prepared for it. But I just think that we have to just stretch ourselves to exhibit that more with our people. And I think the pandemic has done that. It all makes so much sense when you say it. <laughs> that doesn't mean I, it's I, don't, I don't take all the credit. You know, one of the things, Paul, I would say is in the last year, um, you know, though we've um, filled our days 24-7, some of that time for myself has been in reading and participating a lot um, in hearing other leaders speak. And I've invested that time over the past year. And so a lot of credit goes to hearing other speakers, seeing what resonates with me, seeing what I can share with others, reading a bit more on the research. Um, and so I, I, I think that that's just um, a responsibility that all leaders need to take to continue to invest in themselves so that they're investing for not only their, their business and their own results and their own people, but for, you know, customers. Um, and in the end, you know, the consumers who use our products. Well, I think that, you know, ties nicely to your point a minute ago about modeling behavior for your teams. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, you know, we're, we're here. It's the first week of February. The Super Bowl is this weekend. So of course, this is the, you know, the, Super Bowl of advertising, in addition to the Super Bowl of football. Um, and the Super Bowl always, the last couple of years, has really brought to light for me a cognitive dissonance in the marketing industry because a lot of marketers that I know and I work with, um, their personal behavior and their professional behavior don't align, right? So when a TV commercial comes on, they leave the room. They pay for Spotify so that they don't have to listen to ads. They skip ads themselves but then they go buy ads for their brand. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about this idea of is advertising, is it dead, is it dying? You know, what's happening with advertising um, and what's replacing it? You know, this idea of brands sort of having to earn a place in culture. Um, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this evolving landscape, uh, you know, with advertising communications and the overall sort of marketing mix? Sure. Uh, I think you said it right. We're all consumers, right, at, at the end of the day. And so in some ways, we have to look to our own behaviors, like, like you say. And I think it, again, shows that this goes beyond product as well. It, it has a lot to do with how we're receiving our information, the experience we have with the company or the brand. Um, it's the influencers in our own lives and in our own world and, and how uh, they either reinforce or dissuade us from, from buying a product or a service. And I think that just highlights the need for us seeing how communication plays a stronger and stronger role. There, there really is no separate marketing and, and communications function in, in my mind. And I think, you know, a lot of us, and you probably would agree with that, it, it, it's the case, right? And, you know, maybe I'll highlight like a couple of examples on, on what this means. You know, I'm, I'm a, one of my favorite brands is Real Simple Magazine. I feel it resonates with me. I'm a working mom but I still love to cook and I love fashion and I 
get my book recommendations from real self. So it, it's all, it's, it's nothing is so, um, I would say in depth, everything is light, but covers so many different categories, beauty, you know, which are the best oatmeals to buy. I mean, you name it, <laughs> makeup. And it, it, it provides me exactly what I need across a lot of subjects. Now, real simple, all of a sudden started to come out with recommendations on apps, or it started to come out with recommendations on products that they sell. Now, all of a sudden, I love this brand so much. And my experience in, in their content has resonated with me. So therefore, I start to, you know, pick up on that. The opposite example happened where there's this great little gift shop in town that I used to go buy all these shops, especially supporting small business. And then, um, I ended up seeing a couple of reviews just reinforced, you know, some, some, you know, in the, in the political conversations of last year, some crazy things. And next, you know, there's a lot of people who were no longer supporting this organization. I'm like, wow, how quickly, right? Some communication or some experience just changes um, your desire to, to purchase or not purchase right from, from a, a certain brand. So I think that um, advertising is not dead. It's just different today. So you, uh, you brought something up that's very important. We had um, Joel Clark on the podcast not that long ago. Joel's the CEO of Kodiak Cakes. So mm -hmm. the answer to your question of which oatmeal to buy is <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, so a lot of communication, you, you ended there, you know, obviously, yes, you're right. Advertising obviously still has a role to play and, you know, everything's just evolving. Um, but there has been a much greater focus on the responsibility of communications as a catalyst for action within organizations. And that could be interpreted, of course, as communications as a function of people who this is their job, as well as just communications from leaders who, you know, maybe weren't comfortable or accustomed to really being frequent, proactive communicators in the past. Um, so I'm curious, can you discuss your perspective on sort of how the role of communications has changed in the context of everything that's happened over the past year? Yes. I mean, I think it's, it's an incredibly important role. And, you know, I will tell you, even within a company like Johnson & Johnson, um, that uh, really, I think, prides itself and historically tremendous job in having some of the most important conversations. Diversity, right? It's not new. This is in our DNA. We talk about uh, people and service very often. Um, that's why I've been maybe with the company for so long. But even there, it's difficult because once you start going into the organization, um, you start to realize that clearly everyone sits on on, on a different uh, part of the conversation on, on a lot of the topics that have come up uh, over the past year. And it, communications can't do this alone. I, I feel very strongly that it starts with the senior leader setting the tone um, and the opportunity for those conversations. And so I think it's a strong partnership um, with communications to to make that impact. And I, I think because, and, and that's internally, like within internal organizations, I believe externally even more critical because communication um, and leaders and our people all represent the brand. And it is extremely important for communications to play a role in that. And, and we're stretching the role of communications. I'll speak specifically to the space in which uh, we play, which is the breast implant space. Uh, communications is not about just marketing or digital and social strategies. 
um, there is an expectation for patients and consumers to better understand the risks along with the benefits of breast implants. And while we've always prided ourselves in, in, in believing that we made a lot of information transparent, it's not necessarily in a way that a consumer or patient can interpret it. And so I find that the communications role now plays a role with my regulatory teams, with my technical teams, with so many other teams, um, you know, to, to drive a different conversation. So I think I just wanted to express that as well, because I think there's conversation about communications um, given uh, what's happened over the last year, but I also think it's been evolving as consumers and patients, um, you know, expect more from, from brands. I think you're right. One of the things that, you know, obviously emerges as a natural tension here, though, is, You've talked about performance in the you know earlier with with the pie um, framework and the need to perform. Um, your background as an engineer, no doubt, makes you very very data driven. Um, you know, but we've also talked about things that are really hard to quantify: inclusiveness, purpose, brand, right? So when you think about uh, measurement and and data for communications specifically, um, you know. How, how do you think um, communications should be measuring itself and what role should data be playing in some of these, you know, may more uh, amorphous topics? Uh, it's a great question. And you're right. I, I do like data um, and what gets measured gets done, but so hard when you think about, you know, these topics as you, as you call amorphous, but I think there's a way to pulse check. And I think that pulse checking happens um, in a variety of way and they can be measured uh, in other ways. In other words, within an employee base, you can do sentiment surveys over time. How, how do people feel, right? And this isn't something that you have to wait a whole year and say, where was my baseline? Where's my next baseline? There's opportunities to do this after every interaction um, that we have. And so we try to do that with global town halls and things just to feel, to get a sense for, for that uh, sentiment within the organization um, on some of these topics. And, and trust me, we get our feedback. I, people are not shy about that, whether you do it, and you know, most of the time, obviously, anonymously, but whether you do anonymously or not, you get that feedback. I think on the external uh, side, you know, one of one of the things that um, we've started to employ is this tracker technology, which we're able to follow key opinion leaders or social uh, media influencers to really start um, having metrics around how we're talked about, what language is being used for, uh, you know, with regards to our products and 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 our brand. And so I think there there are ways to do that. It, it you have to start somewhere, and I think those are the types of, of of ways that we can measure, you know, sentiment and what seems to to resonate or, or not resonate, and um, we'll get that feedback. That's great. It makes sense from both an internal and an external perspective. So one final question for you here, based on our, our timeliness, uh, you know, at this stage in the world, um, you know, again, Mentor is, you know, sells breast implants that are obviously not the kind of thing that you just sell on Amazon. Um, so, you know, it's been the, the, the COVID world has been difficult, no doubt, um, for, um, for business. So how are you, now that the end is near, preparing for the post-COVID world? Yes. You know, you, you'd be surprised. I think uh, we never would have predicted at the start of the um, pandemic uh, how well the aesthetics industry as a whole would do. So I will tell you that this has been a tremendously resilient 
industry. And I think it's shocked all of us. I think everyone was wrong. Even in talking to our customers, um, we, we've been surprised. Now, that's only one part of our business because we also um, uh, have a patient set that are breast cancer patients and unfortunately did not get diagnosed in a timely fashion. And we're certainly following to see how, how much um, we can you know, do for these patients as they get their mammograms and support them more quickly and move them along their journey to um, uh, being cancer-free and then taking the option if they choose for breast reconstruction. So that part of our business, I, I do believe has suffered um, a little bit more. And we see the data because of uh, uh, need to prioritize some some other procedures or hospital beds and, and so forth. But you know, as we prepare for, uh, you know, what we're where um, our business is coming out of the the pandemic. You know, I I I think that we've learned that we can touch more patients. You know, I mentioned a little bit earlier that things have been changing with regards to the breast implant space. You know, the traditional way was to talk to the healthcare professional. That's how we were required to to market with respect to our healthcare compliance expectations, et cetera. But um, there has been a demand for information. There has been a demand for more transparency. And so for us, it's really starting to think about what we've learned through the pandemic and how we can reach more people in new ways and continue to expand on that. Um, because it is about building trust. It's not just purely about transparency either. It's about building trust. Um, the, you know, more transparency doesn't necessarily mean more trust. I mean, this is about intentions um, and intentions matter in this. And so I think for us, that's what we're preparing for is how do we get back out and ensure we're going back to doing the, the great work of, of educating and talking to consumers and patients. Well, I think that's a really powerful thought to end on there about intentionality and um, trust. So um, let me just say thank you, Diane. This has been a fantastic conversation. We appreciate you sharing all of your insights with us. Hey, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.